So 1 Corinthians 15. Now, Paul has been writing the book of Corinthians here to really address and uh, touch on certain things that were being brought to his attention, some questions that people had about various doctrinal issues, various issues that were going on in the church that needed to be kind of called out as well. And so Paul is writing this letter to address many of these things. You'll hear oftentimes him saying, now concerning, and it's, and it's bringing up a new issue that has been brought to his attention. In chapter 15, Paul deals with now another issue that was going on in the church that he needed to bring some correction and clarification to. And this time it's about the resurrection. And this is a lot more fun to talk about than some of the other things we've had to deal with the last few weeks. So um, this is exciting stuff. And it's so, so important to our, our Christian faith. Reminds me about the story of a, uh, a woman who <clears throat> saw her dog acting a little bit crazy out in the yard and looks out. She sees her German shepherd with the neighbor's pet rabbit in its mouth, just shaking this thing lifeless. And the owner of the dog freaked out because they've already had some tough relationships with the neighbor. And she thought, this is gonna just put things over the edge. She grabs the broom and starts kind of beating the dog to drop the rabbit. The dog finally dropped this now lifeless dead rabbit. And the, the, the owner was just panicked. What am I gonna do? I can't, I can't share this with the neighbors. They're gonna really now hate us all the more. So she takes the rabbit, starts to clean it up, you know, gets the blow dryer, fluffs it all up, makes it look brand new and puts it back in the cage. A few hours later, she hears the neighbor outside screaming, frantically going, it's a miracle, it's a miracle. And the, the owner of the dog runs out, what's going on? She goes, our rabbit died three days ago. We buried it and here it's back. <clears throat> so that's what many people got to say about Jesus. He's back, but they didn't need to prop him up, clean him up. I mean, this was official and literal, Jesus has risen from the grave. And it's indeed the greatest thing that has ever happened in history and has great significance and relevance to us today. And we're gonna uncover a lot of these things as we go through this chapter over the next few weeks. Paul is gonna touch on a couple of things here in these first 19 verses that we're gonna do our best to get through. The fact of the resurrection here in verses one to 11. And then he's gonna talk about the significance of the resurrection in verses 12 to 19. Look at verse one with me here. It says this, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So as Paul gets ready to wrap up this letter, he looks to finish on a high note here. As he gets ready to discuss the, the validity of the resurrection, he begins with the gospel. Because the gospel and the resurrection are so closely linked. They're, they're tied to one another. And so Paul wants them to have a firm grasp of the gospel because, again, it's completely tied to the resurrection. And notice what he says there in verse 1. He says, moreover, brethren, he's talking to believers. He's speaking to the church at Corinth that should have a good grasp of these things. And he says, I declare to you the gospel. I'm declaring. And, and when he uses that word declare, he's using this term that he, he, it's saying, I want you to have a solid working knowledge of this. Not just something that you kind of have heard and sort of know a bit about, but where you intimately know what this gospel is all about. 
And notice this is a gospel that he's already declared to them. He's, he's declared to them which I have preached to you, he says. So he's already laid the foundations out to them. He's already laid the fundamentals out to them. Remember, he's been in Corinth for a year and a half previously where he founded the church and he's been ministering to them. And no doubt, his ministry centered around the simplicity of the gospel of Christ. But now Paul's going, I want to declare this to you again before we talk about some of the things of the resurrection. I want you to have a good working grasp of the gospel. And that's important for all of us. I think this is something that we cannot repeat enough because the gospel is something that I think can, at times, take us a long time to really begin to grab a hold of and have that sort of personal understanding and intimate knowledge of, because the gospel is actually quite foreign to us. It's kind of otherworldly because our, our position as humans is oftentimes to think we've got to work for what we get. We've got to earn what we receive. And the gospel comes along and says, it has nothing to do with what you can do. It's about putting your faith in something that's already been done for you. And that is something that takes us a long time, oftentimes, to begin to shift our thinking because it's so different than how we operate normally. I've grown up in the church and it took me a long time to really get a grasp of the gospel because I thought every time that I made a mistake, oh boy, that might maybe forfeit my right standing with God. Or I've gotta earn my way, I've gotta do things in order to, to be holy before God. And, and I had this kind of understanding that I've gotta earn my way, I've gotta contribute to my salvation. But the gospel says you cannot add to it at any, in any way. In fact, the moment that you think you're adding to it or contributing to it, then you're changing the gospel. You're altering what Jesus has done for you because he's done it all. Amen. And that's what Paul wants to lay out for us, that I want you to understand and know the gospel. And he says something here. He says, this is the gospel which you received and in which you stand. Because he understands that we can easily begin to move away. See, that default position of our heart is, is religion, where we begin to think we've got to do something. And we can easily start off well, but then begin to think we have to add something. Like what Paul said to the Galatians, you know, uh, are you now trying to make perfect in the flesh what has begun in the spirit? We can easily begin to shift and move away, but Paul says, this is the gospel in which you stand. It's gonna provide a firm foundation for you. When, when things begin to blow against you, when the enemy comes knocking on your door to try to convince you otherwise, this is the gospel, the truth in which you're gonna stand and have a solid foundation in. He says in verse two, it's this gospel that saves you. But notice he says, if you hold fast to this word. See, it doesn't, begin, it doesn't matter how you begin, it matters how you finish. Yeah. Do you continue to stand in the truth of the gospel? Or are you looking to perfect it through other ways and other means? Are you looking to add to it by your own workings? Or are you standing strong in what Jesus has done for you? So the question needs to be asked, what then is the gospel exactly? Well, Paul's gonna lay it out very simply for us in verses three and four, but the word gospel is the Greek word evangelion. Evangelion, where we you know, get our word evangelistic or evangelism. It's, it's 
sharing the truth, but that word evangelion meant originally, it meant a reward for good tidings. And, and now we, the word gospel simply means good news. That's kind of what we refer to or define the gospel as is simply good news. But more so the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's the good news of Jesus Christ that has no greater reward for us. Amen? It's a free gift of, of salvation. So Paul lays out for us here in verses three to four. He says, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So notice this, first of all, Paul says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. You see, this is not something that Paul has made up. This is not some new doctrine that Paul goes, man, I could really make myself famous if I come and bring this, this truth, this word, this gospel I'm gonna make up. He didn't originate this. It didn't come from him. He's received it. And remember, he received it from the Lord after he got saved. It tells us in Galatians 1 that he went to Arabia and then came back to Damascus. And he was there for three years before he even conferred with other men, before he went to Jerusalem. You would think a man of Paul's stature after getting saved, he's like, oh, I gotta go count to the other disciples. He said, I didn't do that. It wasn't until three years later, three years where he was spending time, I believe, just receiving from the Lord where he's just in that, you know, school of the desert, getting reprogrammed by the Lord, getting a three-year degree with the Holy Spirit as his teacher, and receiving this very foundation of the gospel. So Paul says, I didn't make this up. It's not originating with me. I'm, I'm delivering it to you because I myself have received that from the Lord. And he lays out now just the simplicity of the gospel. It's only two verses. It's not complicated. And it's this, he says, that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Now that is the beginning point. The, the important thing for us to realize is that we needed help because we're all sinners. And we understand Romans 6.13 tells us what the wages, the, the earnings of sin is, is what? Death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we understand that sin brings death. That leaves us all in a very precarious situation. We're in trouble. We need our sin dealt with, answered to, and, and the cost of that is death. But Paul says, Christ died for you. He died for your sins. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, he did that because he was the perfect, sinless human being that could represent us, but as being fully man representing us, fully God, able to do that work for us. And he died on a cross to take that penalty for our sin, which was death. He took the judgment of God that we could be forgiven, that we could be set free and, and now declared righteous. I mean, it's amazing to think that when Jesus hung on the cross, God saw all of our sin upon him. And Jesus took that upon himself so that now when God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness on us. It's an amazing transaction that took place there on the cross. But we have to recognize Christ needed to do that because he needed to die for our sins. That we were guilty, we were in trouble on our own, but Christ died for our sins. And it says that this was all according to the scriptures. 
See, the Bible is so amazing because of the number of prophecies that it contains and how they accurately spoke of things that were yet to come. What are some of those scriptures? Well, we see in Psalm chapter 22, verse 14, 18, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. This, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I cannot count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. You would think that this was written after Jesus was crucified on the cross. Now what's amazing is this was written before crucifixion was even a thing. And yet it talks about how his hands and his feet would be pierced, how his bones would be taken out of joint. This is what would happen there on the cross. And there's garments were divided among the Roman soldiers, casting lots for it. You would think that this was written after the crucifixion, but it was written hundreds of years before. Prophecy coming to fulfillment, proving and authenticating the authority and truth of God's word. Isaiah 53, verse four to five. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our, our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You know, the Jews have a lot of problems with these verses because it so accurately portrays what Jesus did. And they either try to spiritualize it or they try to claim, well, there's two messiahs. There's this one that kind of came early, but there's, we're still looking for the messiah, the the, the promised one of God. They, they have a hard time with scriptures like this because it so accurately portrays exactly what Jesus would do and what Jesus did do for us. So Paul says that Christ died for our sins that needed to happen so that we could be forgiven and it is all completely um, fulfilling what scripture has already pointed out would happen. But then he says that he was buried. And that's important because there are critics of of Christianity, they'll come along and say, well, did Jesus really die on the cross? I mean, yes, okay, we'll give you that. He was crucified, but did he really die? Maybe he just kind of fainted. And there's the you know, whole swoon theory that, that critics will say Jesus never really died. He just kind of you know, fainted. And then when they took him off the cross, he just seemed to be resuscitated again. And that's what happened. But Paul says, no, he was buried. He was placed in a sealed tomb if Jesus could have survived the effects of the beatings, the scourging before the crucifixion, and survived the actual crucifixion. Well, there's no way he would have survived three days in a sealed tomb in that state. He was buried. Let alone the Roman soldiers knowing that we can't let any of these guys come out the cross unless we know that they're dead. Or else that's gonna be our life on the line. And the Roman soldier took that spear, thrust in his side and outflowed water and blood, knowing that this person is dead. So he was buried, but then, don't you love it? Paul says, oh, but he rose again the third day. Amen. He rose again the third day, amen. And this is what separates Christianity 
from all other religions and beliefs and faiths is that we serve a real and living savior. We're not following some teaching that somebody has passed down that is no longer alive. We're following a risen living savior who came not only to show the way, but to be the way and is the way because he is alive today. He rose again the third day. And this, Paul says, is according to the scriptures as well. Now, scriptures aren't exact in referencing or prophesying rising again three days later. However, we see some wonderful pictures and types in Old Testament scripture. Abraham and Isaac come to mind because Abraham is called in Genesis 22 to take now your son, your only son whom you love. That exactly mirrors what God would say of Jesus, right? Abraham said, take this miracle child, Isaac, and he's called to take him up and sacrifice him up on the mountain. Where? On the Mount of Moriah, the place that Jesus was crucified. And Mo, uh, Abraham, sorry, as he's taking his son Isaac up, he leaves the rest of his, his servants and group behind, and they travel for three days, it says. Three days where Abraham walked with his son as though he were a dead man, realizing this man's going to be taken from us. But Hebrews tells us this. Hebrews 11, verse 17 um, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. And then Jesus refers to Jonah as a picture of his own death and burial and resurrection. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 to 40, he refers to how, how just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so too will the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the, in the heart of the earth. The fact is that he will rise again. One of the clear pictures or verses in the Old Testament referencing Jesus not remaining in the grave is in Psalm 16:10, saying, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Jesus would not remain in the grave. He'll rise again. And Paul points out this is the very gospel. Christ died for your sins, according to scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. All fulfilling what God's plan was all along in order to provide salvation, forgiveness of sins to you, but not just forgiveness of sins, eternal life. Because we have a risen Savior, we now have the hope of everlasting life. It's all founded in Jesus Christ. That's the hope that we have. That's by which Paul says you are saved, in which you stand, if you hold fast that word. Now, this all sounds good and all. We as a church can all say amen, but there might be many that go, well, listen, <laughs> that sounds good. That sounds almost too good to be true. How do I know that this is true. Well, what do we need to validate something today? Witnesses, right? Witnesses. I can all tell you, man, I had the round of golf of my life this week. Five hole-in-ones, man. It was amazing, right? You're all gonna go, well, that sounds pretty cool, Brent. Uh, who are you golfing with? I need to ask them. <laughs> is that legit? Is that true? Reminds me of the, no, I'm not even going to get into it. That's, no, <clears throat> I don't have time. I got too much to cover today here. Okay. 
So Paul, what he does now, and, and notice even in, in this day, there need to be at least two witnesses for a matter to have any substance. That's part of the law, isn't it? That every matter is going to be founded by two or, or three witnesses. And so Paul doesn't just draw two witnesses to the witness stand. He calls upon six witnesses for us to prove and validate the resurrection, to see that, that the resurrection is a fact of history. So who does he call first? Look at verse 5. And that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. So he calls Peter to the stand. Now, it's interesting because he singles out Peter. He mentions the, the rest of the disciples in that same verse. But why does he single out Peter? Because Jesus singled out Peter after his resurrection. Now, remember what Peter must have been going through in those three days after Jesus was taken down off the cross. He had just betrayed and denied Jesus. Think about the anguish that Peter's in right now. But what does Jesus do? He singles him out. How do we know that? Well, when Jesus went and revealed himself to the, the two um, on the road to Emmaus, they came back and reported to the disciples and said, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, Peter. So we know that Jesus came and singled out Peter. And I don't think Peter, or sorry, I don't think Jesus came to Peter like many of us would have come to a friend that had betrayed us. Like, what's the matter with you? How could you do that to me in my darkest, most difficult hour? How could you betray me like that? What kind of a friend are you? That's probably how we would have responded, right? I don't think that's how Jesus responded. I think Jesus came in, in love and grace and forgiveness. And he began to pick up Peter, I believe, and encourage him from this state that he was in. And later on, we know that Jesus restored him to the ministry in a threefold way. Just as Peter denied him three times, Jesus restored him in a threefold way. I believe Jesus comes with such grace and love when we feel least deserving of it. That's the, the greatness of the gospel too right there. So he appears to Peter, and then it says that he appears to the 12, which is the disciples. Now, it's not the 12 at this time, 12 minus one, because Judas, you know, he's not there, right? So, um, but that's just a reference to show, just a reference to show these are the, the guys that has spent the most time with Jesus. These were the kind of the, the inner group that Jesus spent the most time with, and Jesus went and appeared to them. They've seen and can testify that Jesus has risen again. And then we see the third witness. Now, there are those that might go, okay, let's fine, I'll give you that. He's appeared to the, the, the disciples. But maybe they're just kind of collaborating the story. There are those that might question and go, well, what if they're just making this up? Because, you know, they want what they've been living now to be true. And they're just kind of telling the story. Well, notice what happens next. It tells us in verse six that after that, Jesus was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep or some have passed on. So now, Jesus doesn't just appear to 12 who are hopeful and maybe passing on a little bit of wishful thinking. He appears before 500 believers at once. And that becomes a lot more difficult to all collaborate the same story, to all tell people, okay, here's what we're gonna report. Here's what we're gonna say. No, no, they're all seeing Jesus Christ. 
And many of them, Paul says, you can go and ask them yourselves. If you don't believe me, go and talk to them because many of them are still alive today. Go and ask them what they saw and they'll all report the same thing because they saw Jesus Christ alive. Now, you might go, well, okay. So far, these are all believers. That's why he says 500 brethren at once. Maybe these are guys that were just so, again, hoping that this would be real and true. They've been believing it. And maybe now this is just their imaginations getting the better of them. And they're just wishful thinking that this is all real and true. But notice who Jesus appears to next. Verse seven, after that, he was seen by James. Now that's not James the disciple James, James and John, because the disciples have already been mentioned. This would most likely be and most agreed to be James, the half-brother of Jesus. Why is that significant? Because Jesus' own brothers did not believe him during his earthly ministry. They denied him. They mocked him. They were saying, Jesus, it's the feast time. Why don't you go up to Jerusalem and begin a campaign for yourself? If you're the son of God that you say you are, here's the time that you can really gather some followers. But they're doing so mocking him. They did not believe. But what happened? They saw Jesus go to the cross. They saw him die. And now they've seen him alive. Suddenly, they begin to realize, you are exactly who you said you are. We're now believers. Both James and, and his other half-brother Jude, we know, became believers. They've written books in the New Testament. And James became one of the, the, the leaders of the early church. He became an, a, a very integral person in the church. So James gets saved. And he's a, a witness now of the resurrected Savior. He's got nothing to gain out of this. But he realizes this is true. And then he appears to all the apostles. And again, there were more than just the 12 apostles that were sent out. Many other apostles were sent out with the good news of the gospel to proclaim it around the world. And so Jesus appeared to many of them as well. And then the sixth and last witness, look at verse eight. Then last of all, he was seen by me. Paul puts himself on the stand to say, I can attest and verify this. He appeared to me also as by one born out of due time, for I'm the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. So Paul brings himself to stand and say, listen, he appeared to me also. Remember on the road to Damascus, while well, he's going to persecute Christians, thinking he's doing God a favor, Jesus confronts him, knocks him off of his high horse. And Jesus appears to him and says, why are you persecuting me? Paul suddenly realized that he's there in the Lord's presence. And he's not persecuting the church, doing God a favor. He's persecuting the Lord himself. And Paul gets radically, drastically saved and transformed. And now he's a proponent and, and messenger of the gospel. But notice he says, he appeared to me as one born out of due time. What does he mean by that? Well, there's a couple of different ideas, but most likely he's referencing simply that he's kind of come to the party late. He didn't have the, the privilege of being with the disciples and being able to spend time with Jesus, learning and growing from him, seeing Jesus in action. 
He didn't have that gestation period of beginning to just kind of hear from the Lord and take it all in. Like we saw earlier, he's had to have that, you know, schooling uh, for a few years where he's just been, you know, reprogrammed by the Holy Spirit. So he comes to the party late, nevertheless. He's one that he sees has been a recipient of this great grace of God. Everything that Paul has received, everything that Paul has done, he sees is simply by the grace of God. And that's important for us to realize too, none of us deserve <laughs> salvation. None of us deserve this free gift. And a lot of times we tell ourselves that and we think we're unworthy, unable to be saved. But understand, it's not up to you. It's all by the grace of God. It's a free gift, unmerited favor of God that he bestows upon you. And Paul goes, I'm persecuting the church. If there's anybody that God would say, yeah, let's just skip over that guy. It'd be Paul. And yet Paul realizes he was saved by the grace of God. And all that he's done, he continues on in grace. And it's grace that I pray that we all continue to grow in because grace begins to establish a right view of God and a right view of us. Because notice what Paul says here. He says in verse nine, I'm the least of the apostles, right? He goes, man, I, I didn't deserve this. I'm the least of the apostles, persecuting the church, but saved by grace. Three years later, he's gonna write to the Ephesians, uh, the, the church at Ephesus. And what does he say there in Ephesians 3.8? He says, I'm the least of the saints. He goes from I'm the least of the apostles, small group, to actually I'm the least of the saints. But now five years after writing that to the church at Ephesus, he writes in, in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 that he is the chief of sinners. See, the more that Paul grew in grace, the more that he grew in humility and recognized the greatness of God and the undeservedness of himself. But again, it gave him all the more reason to praise God and to thank God for all that he's seen and received. And that's the gospel, is that none of us deserve this. None of us can earn it. None of us can achieve what we need and have a right standing with God by what we do. It's by the grace of God and receiving this free gift of salvation. And then Paul ends in verse seven saying, therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Basically saying, regardless of who's preaching this gospel, the message stays the same. It's very simple. It's all provided through Jesus Christ and what Jesus did for us. And when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. Tetelestai, it's paid in full, gang. The work is done, and we can rest in that now. Praise the Lord for that. So, we've seen the fact of the resurrection, but now we look at the significance of the resurrection. You see, verse 12 says this. Now, if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Now, this is the main crux of the situation that Paul is kind of dealing with in the church at Corinth. Like I said earlier, he's writing the book of Corinth, uh, Corinthians to kind of answer different questions and things that are going on to bring some correction and help. And it seems like this is the thing that's really having to be dealt with. There were those that preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but they didn't believe in their own resurrection. And Paul says, man, there's some real consequences that come 
when you fail to believe in the resurrection of the saints. Even if you preach the resurrection of Jesus, these two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And so Paul begins to lay out how denying the resurrection strips the Christian message of seven key elements. So we're gonna look in verses 12 to 19, or verses 13 to 19, I should say. We're gonna look at seven key elements here, or consequences that we have when we deny the resurrection. It says in verse 13, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And he essentially repeats that in verse 16. For the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. So what do we see first consequence? If we deny the resurrection, well then we're saying that, let's see, let me turn this on here. Then we're saying that Christ is not risen. So that's the first consequence we see. Because like I said, you can't have one without the other. If Christ is not risen, or sorry, if we say that we don't rise again, we don't partake of a resurrection, then the logical conclusion is that Christ is not risen because Christ came in a body. He came representing us. He came as one of us. Yes, he's fully God, but he is fully man. So there's no resurrection, then Jesus isn't risen either. Paul looks to show these are intertwined. But the second thing, look at verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. There's a second consequence. If we don't have a risen Christ, if we don't believe in the resurrection, then what good is our preaching? What kind of power does your preaching have? What are you leading people to? What kind of hope are you delivering? If there's no end goal and no hope, then what kind of preaching are you able to deliver? There's only so far that your best life now can take you before people begin to say, what next? What else do you got? See, the very gospel must provide an answer for death. There's no good news if we don't have an answer for death. You need to provide an answer for death and Jesus provides that for us. That's what again separates Christianity from all other religions and beliefs. People can follow after Muhammad or Buddha, but nobody can give a solid assurance of what's gonna happen after death. That's only provided in Jesus Christ. Christianity is the only thing that provides an answer for death. And without that then, our preaching is empty. But number three, your faith is also empty. And other translations say that your faith is useless or your faith is in vain. It, it provides nothing for you. See, if your faith is in a person that is as powerless in the face of death as you are, then you don't have any kind of faith. Your faith is useless. And if there's no guarantee of inheriting something better than you have in this lifetime, then why bother exercising that faith? What does it give you? It's useless. So your faith is empty. Number four, look at verse 15 with me. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we testify to God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. So, number four, we are found false witnesses of God. That's the fourth consequence if we deny the resurrection. 
it makes us all out to be liars. Because here's Paul saying, we are preaching Christ, Christ crucified, but Christ risen again. That's the hope that we have. And if that is not true, then we are being false witnesses. We're being liars. We're misrepresenting God ultimately. And that's a big deal. Now, again, a lot of people, critics of you know, Christianity or deniers of the resurrection would love to say, oh, these guys are all just kind of lying. They came and they stole the body away and they said, oh, he's, he's resurrected. But they're just lying. But with these disciples, would these New Testament believers be willing to go through the persecution and for many of them face a martyr's death, a very gruesome death, would they be willing to go that route for a lie? Nobody wants to die for a lie. In fact, with the threat of death, many people will come clean. And these disciples were willing to lay their life down and die because they knew that what they believed in was the absolute truth. They have seen the risen Savior and he was worth living for and he was worth dying for. So we see that if we deny that, then we're just liars, false witnesses. Verse 16, like I said, is closely related to verse 13, the first consequence. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. But verse 17 says, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Here's the fifth consequence, and this is a big one. If Christ is not risen, then you're still in your sins. Oh, Christ died for your sins. Yes, he paid the penalty, but that means nothing if he doesn't rise again to show that he's defeated sin and death. The cost of sin is death. He may have paid that death, but he needed to rise again to validate that work and for that to be accepted. And if there's no resurrection, then you're still in your sins. This work that Jesus did, did not actually take. Because Jesus rose again, he's brought us forgiveness of sin, and he's given us power over sin. He showed that he defeated the, the effects of sin. Sin brings death, but Jesus has overcome the grave, the enemy, and sin. He's alive, and we are made now alive in him, and thus we can live as overcomers of sin today. Praise the Lord for that. Number six, verse 18, it says, then also those who fall asleep in Christ have perished. So the sixth consequence is that those who have fallen asleep have perished. Those that have died in Christ, right, is what Paul is saying, who have died with a hope of Christ, that Christ is not resurrected, then they've died and they simply perish. There's no afterlife. There's no eternal life. There's no hope of, of what is to come next if Christ is not resurrected. They've just simply perished. That's a sad consequence. And then lastly, Paul ends in verse 19 saying, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Seventh consequence right there. See, the apostles are going through trials and persecutions for Jesus and doing so without any hope of any kind of eternal reward. Then what's the point? What's the deal? Why would you do that? Others could come along and say, you really are a tragic case. You really are 
people to be most pitied. If you're going to go through these things without any kind of hope of reward. Now, we have the hope of eternal life, but we also have the hope of, of reward. Paul would write in, in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. 2 Timothy 4 verse 6 to 8, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering in the time of my departures at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul could say, man, I have been through it. I have suffered these things. But I know what is awaiting me. And he would say in Romans 8, 16, that the sufferings of this world cannot be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. We are going to see Jesus again face to face. We have the promise of that because he is alive. And he's coming again, as Paul says. This is a reward that all will experience who have loved his appearing, who have been looking forward to seeing him again. And we can because we know that he's defeated sin, death, and the grave, and he is alive today. He's resurrected, and so we have the hope of a resurrection where we will be with him forever and ever. That's the promise we have. This is the significance of the resurrection, and Paul wants to make that clear. We're going to get in a lot more about the resurrection in the next couple of weeks, and I'm looking forward to that. So worship team, would you come up? Now we're going to close with a song here today, and just take some time here to give thanks to the Lord for what he's done. Would you stand with me? If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you do not know what state you're in before the Lord and where you're gonna go when you die, understand that you can have the assurance today of eternal life by simply following the gospel and knowing, as Paul said, that Christ died for your sins. Have you had your sins forgiven? Have you been trying to do that yourself in your way? Or have you turned to Jesus to say, Jesus, I come to you as sinner, guilty, but I ask you, forgive me my sin. Thank you for dying on a cross to pay the penalty for my sin. Thank you that you died and that you rose again, that I could have a hope in you. Come and be my Lord and my Savior. Forgive me my sin. And let me live for you now. If you pray a simple prayer like that, Jesus says that he will make you new, that he will forgive you and make you a child of God. The Bible says that we cannot inherit the kingdom of God unless we become born again. And that's the process. Simply confessing sin, putting your trust in Jesus, and accepting that free gift of salvation. If you've never done that, I encourage you to do that today. Don't give it another minute because you're never guaranteed if you'll have that chance again. Receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior today. And if you've done that today, or if you want to pray that, there'll be people in the front to pray with you afterwards. Come and talk to us. We'd love to share more with you about that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word and this time together today. Thank you that you are alive today and you've given us great hope that, God, we will rise again and we'll spend eternity with you. What a blessing that is. And so continue to strengthen us in this and 
and continue to grow us, Lord, in the truth of the gospel and the grace of God here today. We pray in your name. Amen.